Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, Vietnam. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. This is Alan Averill, and this is episode, well, it's technically episode seven, but I suppose it's episode eight, considering there's a little 20-minute interlude to discuss an album from 20 years ago called Spirit the Earth of Flame, which I suppose could it take seventh position. So let's call it episode eight of Agitators Anonymous, wherever you may be, however I might find you. It seems we are slowly opening society back up. In fact, it seems to have gone down far better to just not discuss those things in the last episode. Admittedly, probably every discussion you are having between yourselves is those very same topics. So maybe we don't need to hear them from me again. So who knew? Not being a grumpy old bollocks works better statistically than being a grumpy old bollocks. I know. Who knew? Who knew? So what am I going to talk about this time? I don't have an interview this time. The interview with Jarvis seemed to go down really well with people as well. His blitzkrieg scattergun optimism um, infected quite a few people. And I forgot to mention that he also plays the bass in Sirith Ungol. How did I forget to mention that? Considering that band is one of the biggest influences on Dread Sovereign, for example. Anyway, what most people have really asked me is, was Dublin really like that? Was it really that crazy? And the answer is, yes, it was. I mean, the amount of people who've come out of the woodwork on forums and to message me um, saying they really enjoyed the discussion, but even people getting angry at 
that hiding they got in 1991 and messages saying to me, oh, if I ever got my whole hands on that person again. And people still remembering that it was um, a really pretty reckless, lawless and violent time in the city. I mean, I remember in a magazine, well, it wasn't a magazine, I guess it was a weekend supplement of the Irish Times, maybe back in 88, 89 or something like this. And they had a pull-out supplement of the different kinds of teenagers you had at the time. I'd filed this away in a book and found it only a couple of years ago. And it was really quite revealing to take a look at. It was a kind of a cartoon supplement, but there was Smith's heads, there was Cure heads, there was Goths, there was hardcore people, there were straight edge people, there was punks, there was metal heads. There was people into garage and psych rock. There was people into the doors. It was really quite insane. I went to quite a liberal secondary school, which for people outside to Ireland is maybe from 13 to 18 years old. I went to quite a liberal school, which didn't have a uniform. Most people don't realize that Ireland has the highest percentage of uniformed schools and single sex schools still in operation in the world, as I understand it. And that means boys went to a boys school, girls went to a girls school and they had uniforms. Now this is partly symptomatic of our our state handing over the education of our children to the church after the famine in 1849 or so, um, with of course devastating results when you consider child abuse and all that kind of thing. It's kind of like handing over the keys to the sweet shop to... Uh... Anyway, we won't go in, we won't go down that road. Maybe I'll keep that for another time. Nothing like a podcast about Catholic child abuse to get your teeth stuck into while you're walking around on a sunny day thinking you're on an endless summer holiday and lockdown, huh? Anyway, we'll leave that for another time. So what people don't realise is that in 1845, when the famine started, I'm not going to go all Irish politics on it and all that kind of thing, because that's a, such a huge, weighty subject that I'm really going to need some preparation to get stuck into Irish politics, despite the fact that I keep getting asked to discuss it. That is a quagmire to get bogged down in just talking off the top of your head, which is obviously what I'm doing, seeing as it's quite meandering and all over the place. However, in 1845, the population of Ireland was over 8 million. And in 1849, four years after that, after the famine, it was halved. So half of those people had migrated and half of those people had died. And from 1849... Basically, the famine set in motion a movement of Irish people that continued until the early 1990s, which may sound crazy, but the population of Ireland throughout the 20th century hemorrhaged people as young people with no future just left, which is the reason why you have a bigger Irish-American diaspora than Italian-American diaspora. Now, this is not what Hollywood movies would have you believe and was not really readdressed until you get to the gangs of New York, for example, or Peaky Blinders or whatever, um, even though that's said in the UK, right, I think. Anyway, or it's just an excuse to advertise flat caps. I'm not really sure. Anyway, um, so we handed over our education of young people to the Catholic Church. And from 19, let's say 1850, and if you then look at the population of Ireland in 1979, the population of Ireland is about only 2.4 million, I think, in 1979. So throughout the 20th century, we just hemorrhaged young people. And the economic growth of the country was equivalent to that of Romania or Bulgaria or Hungary. In fact, Ireland had this isolationist policy 
um, throughout the 20th century where we created almost socialist style, um, you know, a tourism board, an agriculture board, a farming board, on board Planola, on board Namona, all these kind of things. That's Irish for the board of, I guess. Um, and we tried to insulate our economy dealing with our nasty neighbour next door, next door. And this created almost no economic growth throughout the 20th century. So I'm trying to paint a bit of backdrop or context of why Ireland maybe was the way it was leading up to. When I, w when I said that Ireland was a second world country in the 1980s, when I was a young teenager um, in 88, 87, etc., uh, it really was, I think, growing up in Dublin or Glasgow or Birmingham or Leeds or, you know, cities like that, Liverpool. I think many, my stories about the recklessness and the violence at gigs resonated with people. And then they resonated even further. I got messages from people in Mexico, in Colombia, in Brazil, in Serbia, in, well, maybe not Serbia back then, but, um, you know, people in the, behind the Eastern Bloc in Hungary who talked about getting chased by the police and getting battened outside gigs and stuff. Oddly enough, almost all of the rest of Europe, I, most of the messages I got were, what, really? It was really like that? Because they're used to coming to the Ireland that you went as a weekend getaway, a Ryanair destination. They came here on stag dues. They came here and they saw an affluent, vibrant uh, city. But believe me, it was not like that in 1986, that's for sure. And it definitely wasn't like that in 1988. The Temple Bar that you see in the early 80s was almost all empty and in disrepair. It was widely regarded as where you went to buy heroin. Um, there was a couple of old record shops that we used to go to, but there was really nothing there. There was one street which was the posh street, and that was Grafton Street. The rest, well, have at it and enter at your own risk, so to say, so to speak. We, we used to go into town on a Saturday afternoon and you could literally be in a street scuffle every hour, every half an hour, just as a gang of long haired kids, you know. So we have all, oh, so we have all of these kinds of teenagers and literally they all used to fight with, we, we used to call them hoodies, chavs, neds, etc. I mean, my, I guess you would call it my prom, no, well, we don't call it prom in Ireland. We call it our debs, our debutantes. Our, on our prom uh, or debutante night at the finishing secondary school, my friend got stabbed with a screwdriver, for example, in the street outside where we'd all filed into town, town, the city centre. And that was not an unusual story. I mean, um, I have friends who were stabbed with syringes full of blood in the early to mid-90s by junkies. Uh, trying to rob money. There's a very big, uh, these kind of things seem to really, really shock people. But at the same time, growing up within it, it didn't seem that shocking or that strange. It just seemed to be part of growing up in the city and that you were always on the lookout, always watching who was ahead of you, 20, 30 yards ahead of you. I mean, even just getting the night bus home when I lived in the suburbs as a teenager um, at the bus stop, I mean, you end up with two different sets of let's call them hoodies fleckies chavs neds uh from two different areas and there could be a street fight with 30 40 50 people i've 
I have many memories of that happening right at our bus stop on the way home. And the night bus home, anybody from the UK and Ireland would tell you that the night bus home to the suburbs was always just a tank, a boozed up tank of violence heading out to the suburbs and fights up and down the stairs and uh, were just so common that I can't even really recall all the times all those kind of things happened. So the first part of my story from last week tried to make me think about trying to set some sort of I should have realistically tried to set some backdrop for the Dublin of 1990 and all those old death metal gigs and it's quite a hard thing to contextualize for some people because I think what happened is that after the fall of the Berlin Wall um, and the collapse of communism we saw a new regenerative 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 process across the European Union and the birth of a new emergent middle class. And I think that much of the old Europe, I mean, if you went to like, you watched, I watched a documentary about Creator from the 1980s in German, and it paints the rural industrial area as a pretty grim place in the mid 80s, you know, and definitely not. Cities were not the affluent hubs of metropolitanism that they seem to be now. I mean, maybe in Scandinavia they were, but in middle Europe, it was still racked by a very big class system and huge working class problems. I mean, what I was trying to say there is that in Dublin, for example, in 1988, the people to be afraid of were people from Dublin. They were the people that were going to mug tourists, so they were the people who were going to beat your head in. There was no migration into Ireland. In fact, and I tell this story to some people and they look at me wide-eyed in that I went to quite progressive primary and secondary schools. I mean, as in they weren't, we weren't taught by priests and nuns. And that was still the mid-80s, you know, the um, mid-90s. I mean, of course, our old alcoholic female teachers beat the shit out of the kids but I mean that was par for the course in 1985 but I remember and people stare at me wide-eyed with amazement when I say that in 1985-86 we had a visit from um, a Nigerian musician into our primary school just so as to try and integrate the kids with even seeing a black person in the flesh who tried to teach us about African customs and music. And when I think about it, looking back, it was pretty progressive of our school at the time. But the fact was, none of us had ever really even seen migrants on the streets of Dublin, which is quite incredible. But when, if you tie that into the constant hemorrhaging of people out of the country, millions upon millions of people in the 20th century leaving because they had no economic future, um, this is the backdrop of those gigs that I'm talking about 30 years ago. This is the backdrop of um, the street violence, of the fact that Dublin was this reckless, lawless place. I mean, of course, it was also on some level a great place. I mean, 1989, those times I remember as a teenager, I don't, I, I remember, I don't remember being poor, so to speak. People shared what they had. I don't think we ever went for anything, so to speak. But you definitely, people didn't have massive personal debt as they do now. They weren't encouraged to have a quarter of a million euro mortgage or all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm rambling. I'm rambling. I know it. 
However, maybe it paints a little bit of the backdrop of to what the city was. In 1992, the city began to change. Um, with heavy metal, ecstasy came in. And this is something I maybe is an interesting thing to discuss, is that drug culture changed. In the 1980s, Ireland was ravaged, or Dublin was ravaged with heroin drug culture. But as a teenager, I don't remember anyone ever saying, oh, we're going to get coke or we're going to get speed or anything like this. I just don't remember even hearing or seeing of that. But when ecstasy came in in 1992, there was a club called The Asylum right in the city centre, which had a pentagram and a key out in the door outside. And it was a lawless place of five or six floors. And originally ecstasy back then would have been 20 pounds, 15, 20 pounds, I guess. And a lot of metalers, a lot of underground people, I guess you would call them that, hemorrhage left to the prodigy, left to ecstasy, left to a completely different culture. So the all what happened is that all of the sort of violent inner city um, thrashers and death metal kids migrated with the drugs as ecstasy came in. And bizarrely enough, a lot of the street violence just stopped. So you had this very strange situation whereby this illegal drug had come in and had changed the face of the city. It had changed the socialising, even the concept of socialising in the city. Um, and all of a sudden, lads who wanted to kick the head off you wanted to hug you. And it sounds like a complete cliche, but around about 1992, I remember that we had Carcass and we had Death. And then after that, nothing. Because all of the promoters moved into doing raves. They could hire out warehouses, pack in a thousand people, sell ecstasy at the door through the bouncers and not bother to have to wait to contact, to ring a band uh, promoter in London or something to send a band over on the ferry and on the train. Of course, it's the days before email, all that kind of stuff. And literally our scene just stopped in 1992. There was no more gigs, nothing. We got one or two a year, maybe a typo negative, maybe a Slayer, maybe a Megadeth, until we ourselves started to bring bands over. Whether it was first off, it was Decomposed, Corpse, Chapel of Rest, um, In the Woods, Catatonia. We had to make our own shows because there literally wasn't any. Because I would say 75% of the scene had just hemorrhaged to ecstasy and dance and electronic music culture. It's very strange and there's something very interesting there about the. if anybody's seen the movie Dublin Old School, yeah, kind of makes a bit of sense. So we lost, the people who were left standing were the kind of people who were committed to the music and the scene and they ended up becoming Kurokon, Primordial, Morning Beloved, The Bad and Incarnate, Dublin Metal Events, Sentinel Records, Invictus, etc, etc, etc. The story goes on. Because they were the people who were left standing from 91, 1990 and were committed to still being metal. It sounds really, really strange to say. So, in a way, ecstasy stopped the street violence, yet it also spelled the end for our 88 to 1992, as I called it in last week, the golden period of heavy metal gigs, you know. I've got to stop saying you know also. Maybe we can have a tip jar or something for every time I say it. Anyway. So maybe that paints a little bit of the backdrop 
to what Dublin was like because it was really like that. Some other time I'm, I'll try and discuss the politics. Maybe I'll get Joe from Gamma Bomb, who's from the north, uh, to maybe have a little bit of a chat about it with me. Um, as people do forget that even though Belfast and Dublin are whatever, 200 kilometres apart, they're very different places in the 1970s and the 1980s. And once you say you're from Ireland, um, many people still don't really understand that there was a border there and etc, etc. And this is one of those things that people don't really realise about Ireland, is that um, we were basically all the same. I'm not going to get into why the North is half Protestant, half Catholic. Um, but the South, the 26 counties in the South, are, or at least were, 96, 97% Catholic. So people don't really understand that the Catholic Church didn't even need a nascent fascist party to do its bidding. I mean, literally, the state just handed over, as I said, the education of children to the Catholic Church. Um, but we were all essentially the same, spoke the same language, same ethnicity. So there's no political cleavages, so to speak, except for the Labour Party in Ireland, the old Socialist Party. All political parties came from the same source, I guess, as the Irish Republican Brotherhood or something like this. So Ireland has quite a strange political history. I mean, obviously, which I'm, but I'm going to try and... Um, Maybe I should do a proper podcast about that rather than a meandering podcast that started off about death metal and ended up in Irish politics. Um, and if some of my statistics are a little bit wrong, that's OK. Just write a concerned letter and mark it Ireland, care of the Catholic Church, 1880. And it should get there. No problem. So what I'm going to do for, at least in my head, what I'm calling the second part um, originally, when I started the podcast, I was dividing it into two halves and putting the juicy, crazy stories um, trademark in the second half. But now that I'm not taking the first half to really discuss the lockdown or whatever else like that, um, I'm just going to sort of, in my head at least, divide the podcast up into quarters, thirds, whatever. So I wrote a, before all this happened, I wrote an article called The Festival Headdress Blues. And a few arguments, debates that I've had lately about the nature of some of the things that I mentioned in it have come up again. So I thought what I might do is go through that article and have a brief discussion on um, some of the trends, I suppose we could call them, or new musical movements that are taking control of the metal scene, you know. It's festival season, which for me means getting on a plane most Thursdays and Fridays at 4 or 5 a.m. to fly the red eye to Europe and then spend a few bleary hours in a van to drive from one festival site to another. However, this is, I think, the first summer in 20 years where I haven't been going back and forward abroad to Europe to play. And it's a really strange and curious mindset you in the beginning i was angry at the situation and then there's really nothing you can do so you try and submit to unearthing some disciplines you thought you'd lost as in 
running as in keeping fit and then trying to be creative in other ways like this but there isn't really much you can do so in those 20 years or more 30 years realistically but 20 years really what happens is that festival culture is like it's its own separate ecosystem and you keep seeing and meeting the same people every year everyone gets a little bit older and there's new scenes or there's new trends and there's new things coming and going but one of the things that has really taken over the scene in the last two years only, and I'm going to maybe try and discuss why or the reasons I think that is and why the article itself was called the Festival Headdress Blues. You meet the same people, but there's trends. A lot of times you're spent sitting around with the same characters as you might do every year and you observe these new trends. So. So what I got into a big debate about recently was this success of bands like Heilung and all of the bands following on from that. And I wanted to examine, um, is that really some sort of pagan countercultural movement or how do we sit it in the trends that move across heavy metal? Because what became clear to me is that um, a scene that seemed a little bit bored of itself, i.e. the rock and metal scene, um, was looking for something a bit more exotic. And because music, in my opinion, overall, has been somewhat demeaned as an artistic medium, the album is not that important anymore. Everything became about visual content. So bands like Heilung became almost perfect to fit into a post-Skyrim post-gaming, post-Game of Thrones, post-Vikings world. I mean, I remember Einar from Wardruna, uh, who I know for two decades, telling me with Wardruna and that he was, you know, I had little or no, I, can, I could not imagine that he would become this incredible cultural catalyst, this zeitgeist, this touchstone that all came of rubbing stick and stone together on the mountainside. Of course, who could have predicted that TV would clobber cinema and pre-Christian drama would end up influencing an entire music genre. I mean, it's complicated. It's complicated. If you make the spectacle big enough, then within a year or two, you will be headlining or you will be at the end. Because, I mean, who is going to put those bands on at two and three in the afternoon? But in the theme of one or two summers, I've been very often sitting blankly staring into space, nursing a tepid beer and a troop of musicians with antlers strapped to their heads, beads, headdresses, flags, pagan symbolism and hoods take to the stage without guitars, bang drums, chant to a field of curious onlookers. And in one or two years, they've come to be at the end of every bill. I mean, who could have put that on during the day? As I said, you just wouldn't. Nice move. Well played. Heilung. And it is perfect for the modern visual world. Music must acknowledge that gaming is bigger than it is. And the simple fact is that these band members, to me, look like characters from games, which for a whole generation of young Skyrim, or I use that as my only reference, uh, other than to say Doom, which obviously it isn't. But Skyrim and um, World of Warcraft, ah, there you go, my brain threw out another one. It's baffling, of course, for older metal musicians who still don't understand the massive impact of gaming. But it can't be a coincidence that nearly all of the band members look like gaming figures. Add to this 
as I alluded to, the fact that Vikings, the TV series, has a massive influence. The image, the soundtrack, it has more cultural impact than a band does. And even if its influence is less important culturally than Game of Thrones, it's still incredibly huge. This year I went to a pub to watch, a pub in Dublin, to well, when we were still allowed, um, to watch a football match and to find that they weren't showing football. They were showing the last episode of Game of Thrones. And the pub was thronged with young people dressed as characters from the show. I think that we have to realise, even in the post-Joe Rogan moving to Spotify world, which I'm not going to comment on perhaps in this podcast, but is the fact that music is third or fourth or fifth place or less, even maybe seventh or eighth, in the list of important, importancy. Is that a word? It is a word. In the list of um, social and cultural influence anymore. And this is why you mix this and you meld this with people's hunger for the exotic and you end up something you end up with something like the who not the who but the who h u from mongolia who are pushing 5 10 15 20 million views on youtube i mean these are massive statistics and to my untrained ear it seems to sound like the riff from warriors of the world played on a mongolian one or two string instrument mixed with that throat singing, delivering some ferociously nationalistic words, which I don't think a European band can necessarily get away with, by guys who look like extras from Sons of Anarchy, another massive TV show. The visuals are spectacular, the band are exotic, and it all once again falls into the remit of the influence of gaming and TV series Binge Watch to interpret the cultural influence of these bands one of the arguments I've been having is, is this actually a groundswell movement, a pagan cultural zeitgeist, or is it part of a tradition? And somebody asked me earlier on during the week about pagan metal, about folk metal, and I said that the original idealistic concept of pagan metal, I mean, with Primordial, we were obviously connected to the second wave of black metal, but unwilling to pin ourselves to the satanic orthodoxy of black metal in its original form, even though that's what we felt most kinship with. We wanted to talk about culture, about our relationship to pre-Christian mythology, our pagan heritage, so to speak, along with many other bands such as Enslaved, Einherjer, um, In the Woods, etc. And if primordial is the dark underbelly of pagan and folk metal, I have no problem with that. It's just that the term folk metal itself became, I think, more a follow-on from power metal. But what I've been trying to dig down with a couple of people, um, Michael from Seasons of Mist of Wong, among others, is, um, is this an actual cultural movement? I mean... Personally, if you turn off the visuals, I'm not sure that I quite get the music. But at the same time, perhaps this is, perhaps this is some form of cultural zeitgeist. Watching Heilung, it seems primal, genuinely pagan. And there's no denying the often forceful presence of strong feminine energy from these bands, which is really great and a new thing to behold. It seems to uphold tradition, uh, even in Celtic myth. 
Um, perhaps this is an exciting musical movement that bends the nihilistic traditions of heavy metal that people need right now. I mean, who knows? But it's got to be better than songs about killing prostitutes or rap metal from the main stage, right? I mean, it's curious. I was sitting there at Vakin and down near the, um, I suppose you could call it the band's battle tent, where the bands who had won the competition from uh, these different continents had come to play in the tent. And there's always a crowd there, admittedly, and it's where bands like Hamford and stuff came from. But the Mexican band, complete with huge plumage and headdresses, and then you look at every other day I'm getting an email in my inbox and it's Polynesian death metal with Hakka lyrics. And all of it has some form of pre-Christian, pagan pomp and circumstance about it. It's rattled the cages of a lot of old rock and traditional metal fans, but it's definitely added a, a new flavor and a new spice to it. And I can only hope that underneath the headdresses and the beads and antlers and this kind of stuff, that it does maybe provoke a primal reaction among people to want to go and discover their cultural inheritance, that they're their history, their place in this world, and to try and understand the past a bit more. And it's not only a soundtrack to gaming. There's a bit of a random sequitur there from um, Irish Catholicism into pagan metal. I mean, the original concept of pagan metal in the early 90s, I think, came from black metal. It was just bands who didn't really wish to sing about Satan. They wished to sing about something cultural or historically relevant to their mythology but I think that we have to accept that we live in a visual world that's just the way things are now I mean of course there's some part of me that considers let us say with some of the followers not necessarily leaders in that scene just like any scene that there is some form of a calculated cash in that if you do dress yourself up in the correct fur and garb and robes and headdress and you do have the familiar chanting and drumming backdrop and a big visual presence and manage to link yourself into the algorithm along with clips from Game of Thrones and Vikings and all that kind of thing, that there is an element of cynicism that I certainly know of a few musicians who have decided to throw their hand in the ring with this style. And all truth be told, I have a feeling if I sat down with Simon from Primordial and Kiron in a weekend, we could probably work some of that music out, or at least work out something that would have its equivalency. And then maybe if we hired a bunch of people to, well, you see what I'm getting at. This is not to say or to take anything necessarily from that scene. I just think it's it's perfectly placed. However, at the end of the day, is it fair to try and remove that kind of music from its visuals because they're as important to it? I mean, we can all listen to a black metal album and appreciate the music without necessarily having the aesthetics, but maybe the aesthetics and the visual is inseparable in this circumstance and it's just a trope of me as an old middle-aged 
heavy metal musician who wonders maybe what all the fuss is about, or at least on behalf of some of my peers. I can see what the fuss is about. It's exciting. It's new. It's vibrant. And let's be honest, as I said, if this entices people to discover their culture, their heritage or history, it's got to be better than useless bands singing about killing prostitutes or joke bands which encourage the crowd to dress up as furry animals or whatever. It's got to be either one or the other, right? Anyway, that's the end of the second part of discussion. Like I said, I'm just kind of rambling here. So so I suppose at this moment in time, I should mention that if you want to follow me on Instagram, it is primordial underscore nemthiang. I always forget to mention the socials. And the Patreon is patreon.com slash Alan Averill with two capital A's. So the next final part of the podcast, I'm just going to take a little look at Primordial's experience in the USA with second and third generation Irish people. And perhaps a little analysis of what the adoption of that culture means to people. It never ceases to surprise me how many people outside of Ireland who've probably never been there, but are fascinated with what they perceive to be this, the romanticization of the hooligan element, the terrorist culture, that kind of thing. And you can see this, for example, exemplified in, or you can see this as an example with how many people seem to be obsessed with football hooligan movies in the USA and how they're, with their own teams, they're trying to create ultras and trying to create tension between different teams. And it seems so antithetical to the history of American sports that there would be a level of antagonism because, you know, of course, in European sports, these histories go back 50, 100, 120, 130 years. And it seemed to be so fundamental to the a new nation to try and adopt these romantic principles that they perceive the old world to have. So there we were playing pool in Allentown, Pennsylvania with, I suppose, a gang of um, young men and young women who were weaned on the Dropkick Murphys and had only really... I don't think they knew who we were, but they definitely seen in brackets the word Ireland after our name on the poster. And they'd come down literally to do a shot of whiskey with a real life Irish person to play pool with a bunch of Irish dudes. But what happened was that we developed something of a bond with these six or ten, this gang, and they decided to sort of follow us for a couple of shows. And everywhere we went we more or less gravitated towards the Irish bar that was in the vicinity of whatever venue we were playing or just hung out in the front of these bars and we would invariably meet people all dressed with the same kind of oxblood docks, the same bomber jacket, the same, but who were all fascinated by the fighting Irish. There is a certain kind of irony to the whole situation, or rather, well, a most definite irony, And that is, of course, that the reverence paid to hooliganism, for example, English hooliganism. There wasn't really any Irish hooliganism, still really isn't generally. 
the reverence paid to that hooligan culture and let's call it the old oi skinhead culture of the late 70s, early 80s in the UK, elements of that scene would have been no doubt loyalist and therefore anti-Irish. So you have a really, really strange dichotomy there of these kids who had adopted elements of English hooligan culture but yet had the Dropkick Murphys t-shirt on or had also adopted elements of Irish culture without really maybe comprehending that in a punk rock circumstance or a punk rock way of looking at it that some elements of those traditionally would have been diametrically politically opposed to each other. It's for sure a screwdriver definitely didn't have any love for Irish people. But anyway, I digress. I mean, just a casual cursory look on YouTube and you can find The Rumjacks, an Irish pub song. You can find A Fistful of Roses. Of course, you'll find the Dropkick Murphys, Barrels of Whiskey by the O'Reillys and the Paddy Hats. I've never heard of any of these bands, but these bands have 10, 20, 30 million views. And the truth is that there, there isn't an equivalency of these bands in Ireland made by Irish people. These bands are from Eastern Europe. They're from Germany. Um, very often we've played with bands, a band who will be on somewhere in the middle of the bill called like the green fields of Athen Rye or something like this or strange amalgamation like O'Reilly and the Paddy Hats doesn't really make sense in English um, and this strange appropriation of Irish culture and I suppose we can call it that I mean anybody is celebrating St. Patrick's Day a form of cultural appropriation I don't know but certainly the Irish aren't bothered by it not that I agree with the concept of cultural appropriation anyway, because as an as a concept, it's intellectually redundant if you consider the movement of peoples. I mean, is then we might as well not even learn our learn another language. I mean, it's a it's a completely xenophobic intellectual idea. Anyway, I digress. What I'm trying to get at is that for such a small nation, we seem to have such a disproportionate influence throughout the world. Um, of course, our traditional music, the Dubliners, the Chieftains, the Wolftones, etc., lends itself very well to this, the hooliganization of the tone of the sound. It's the, the rebel archetype that is so appealing to people from other countries, especially the United States, who maybe don't have that lineage, who are looking for this lineage. Anyway, so we toured the United States and everywhere we went, we found these people quite willing. They wanted to be our security. They wanted to just hang around and sort of vaguely look for trouble. And I'll never forget, we played in Los Angeles, the one and only time we played in Los Angeles. I mean, many people ask me why Primordial never tours the United States more. And I'll digress for a moment and just explain that what happens is that the visa is three or four thousand euro working visa for the United States. American promoters don't want to pay your flights, so the band have to pay the flights and then you print your merch and before you know it, you're ten thousand euro down. But the biggest problem really is is that there are very few professional bands anymore. Most band members work 
or have other or second or third or fourth jobs. So for a band like Primordial who have a supplementary income by being paid reasonably well within Europe to take away that supplementary income to their normal everyday jobs to go and play in America for nothing for two to three to four weeks. It just doesn't really make sense. So you can actually blame streaming and blame Spotify if you really want to for taking away the concept of being an actual musician. Because for the five of us, it is um, very difficult to find the time. As in, you only get X amount of days off your normal day job. So which do you do? Do you play the shows that provide you with 25% of your yearly income or more? Or do you play the ones that provide you with nothing and be expected to pay your own visa and your own flights? It's a complex position that most European bands find themselves in. So that's the predicament that, as a musician, you find yourself in. So it's not that Promodio does not want to tour the States. If there was no entry work visa, then things might be a little bit different. Anyway, I digress, I digress. Promodial is playing in Los Angeles, and for whatever reason, um, there's a strong portion of the crowd who seem to really dislike us. I mean, not that many, but a few. And I do remember, and I'll never forget, just this one guy, one, two guys in the crowd, just fuck you, fuck you, fuck Irish people, fuck, blah, 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 just constantly. I don't know what had happened. Maybe this guy's girlfriend had run off with a ginger. I'm not really sure, but something had happened. And I do remember saying, because there was an element of the flat caps and the white vest guys hanging around. I do remember saying, um, the next time you say that to me, you insult every Irish man in the venue. And there being a bit of a kind of a lull, a bit of a silence. And then I saw what was going to happen and literally the dropkick Murphy guys just going for these two guys and all hell breaking loose in the venue in L.A. And it was just such a strange and curious moment to be part of watching second or third generation Irishmen defend the honour of some pagan black metal band from Dublin playing in the House of Blues in L.A. What an odd and curious moment. There was some deeper pathos or deeper could we say hubris there that I was reaching for that I'm not sure I have managed to find but it is curious that for such a small country our influence is incredibly disproportionate if you think about all the countries that celebrate St. Patrick's Day now I know it's just an excuse to drink alcohol and get a bit leery this is true but if you think about what it actually really represents and for such a small nation the disproportionate influence we have when it comes to artists, writers, poets, all of these musicians, all of these kind of people. I mean, Freud notoriously said that you couldn't psychoanalyze the Irish. Now, I don't know quite what his basis for that judgment was, but it's an interesting thing to throw into a random rambling podcast. So what is it about the Irish psyche that seems so fascinating to people abroad? It seems to be to me, the element of the Celts as being the romantic losers of history, that there is a kind of, in, in South America, they call it saudade, the soul sadness. There seems to be a sort of romantic heroism in failure that Irish 
that being Irish seems to embody, that we seem to glorify. In Ireland, we call it the bale bucht, which means the poor mouth. And I think that there is a very great history and a very great habit among Irish society of venerating failure of the bale bucked, the poor mouth of apologising for being. It's an apologetic tone to me. I've known people who will apologise for their band. You know, we're sorry that we're playing here tonight, but sure, there's the bar. Have at it. It's a complicated thing, but this definitely has some linkage to the to our Celtic ancestry, which seems to be this romantic, mythological people that have captured the imagination, but yet no one seems to be able to tie down in a very factual and statistical and empirical way to analyze their movements. So there's definitely some form of the romantic failure, David and Goliath story that runs through our history of rebelling against our neighbors, of fighting an empire, gaining our own independence, gaining our own republic. And it's just such a strange distillation to be end up standing at a stage, for example, at Brutal Assault, and we go down to look at, as I said, Paddy and the Hats or the O'Reilly's or quite a strange thing to see the impact of Irish culture in this sense over Poles, over Hungarians, over Bulgarians. And what you realize is that we always we love the underdog. We love the romantic myth of the underdog. And that's kind of what people seem to be celebrating. Okay, it's elementally fatuous. It's a little bit in historic. In historic? That's not a phrase, is it? It's historically inaccurate to some degree, but that doesn't get in the way, as they say in Ireland, never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. Also, the narrative seems to be even more popular now as we see the rebel instinct as something that rails against the colonial, the ex-colonial mindset. It seems to be um, an anti-capitalist trope, you know? And these these romantic notions of rebellion fit. Anyway, it's about time that I went back, back inside my box. It's the end of podcast number eight. Like I said, you can follow me on Instagram, primordial underscore nemthianga, and the Patreon, and all that kind of thing. It's a crazy, crazy world right at the moment. It seems somewhat disingenuous to have made a podcast and not made some comment about some of the things that are happening. It really seems to be an incredible time of upheaval. I know we always, I think we always believe, or we have come to believe in the West maybe that historical upheaval is something that's just not going to happen to us. It's not going to happen to us in our time. It's from another country, another continent, another era. But it's very hard to not turn on the news and wonder, perhaps this is our time. This is the time where the world gets turned on its head. Take care of yourselves out there.